We are finishing Esther chapter 2 and going into uh, Esther 3. As we look through this book, and we look for the work of God in a book that doesn't mention Him. Before we get in, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, as always, thank You for giving us Your Word and making us Your people. Lord, as we come to Your Word this morning, as we study this difficult book, again, we pray for understanding. Help us to see the big picture of how You work. Remind us that You use sinful people like us to carry out Your work even when we don't realize it. Lord, remind us that we are, in fact, sinful people and there's a price that has to be paid for sin. Lord, remind us also that you have paid that price. Help us to see you in a book that doesn't mention you, and for this we need your wisdom and grace. We ask for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Four years ago, the third movie in the X-Men series came out, and it was entitled X-Men The Last Stand. The plot of the movie was fairly simple with the minimal plot being made up for, of course, with maximum action. Maximum action meaning dazzling special effects and lots and lots of loud explosions. Essentially, the plot of the movie is as follows. The X-Men are humans whose genes have mutated, giving them unique special powers. (coughs) And so they're referred to as mutants. For the most part, the humans and the mutants don't like each other. Of course, the rift between the humans and the mutants finally reaches a boiling point because the humans discover what causes them to mutate, and they found a cure for this. And so when the cure to treat mutations is announced, lines are drawn amongst the mutants. On one side is the X-Men, led by Professor Charles Xavier, and the other side is the Brotherhood, a band of powerful mutants led by his former ally, Magneto. And so Magneto puts together an army of mutants, and they're going to wage war against the humans. And then, all of a sudden, it becomes clear that a former member of the X-Men, Jean Grey, who we all thought had died at the end of the second movie, has in fact evolved into the phoenix, this kind of super mutant. And her new powers are so strong that even she can't control them. So she kills off Professor Xavier with her new superpowers. And now the X-Men must stop Magneto again, put an end to the war against the humans, and stop Jean Grey's super phoenix powers. And of course, there is a climactic battle scene at the end where the X-Men make their uh, valiant and successful last stand against evil and save the human race. So all is good in the world of comics and special effects movies. What does all that have to do with the book of Esther? Well, here we have a decree to destroy an entire race of people. Except here, it doesn't end with a courageous last stand against someone with a personal vendetta. But rather here, it begins with a last stand which creates a personal vendetta. 
So in the movie, we had an ending with a last stand against someone with a personal vendetta. This chapter opens with a last stand, and it's going to create a personal vendetta. Before we take a look at that, we need to be reminded this is a book about flawed people. We're into our, uh, this is the third uh, sermon in our new series on the book of Esther. And uh, as I've told you before, there's a ton of satire in this movie uh, and this uh, book. (laughs) Sorry. Ton of satire, most of it directed towards the most powerful man in the world, uh, the monarch here but in the 5th century before Christ, Xerxes the Great, who in your text is known as uh, by his Persian name of Ahasuerus. The king was so pompous and powerful, he puts on what is essentially a six-month-long world's fair, showing off his enormous wealth, culminates in a seven-day feast that's the mother of all banquets. All of this is to draw support for his upcoming war against the Greeks. And then on the last day of the banquet, when everybody got drunk, he summons his queen, uh, Vashti, to the banquet so he could show off her beauty to this huge party. And she courageously refuses, so he calls a meeting of his advisors, seven advisors who don't strike us as very intelligent, and they tell him, pass an irrevocable decree, the Vashti be banished, and her crown given to someone better than she, meaning somebody more submissive, but equally beautiful. And the real motive here seems to be not so much punishment of Vashti as fear that what she has done will catch on throughout the kingdom and the Persian version of the women's liberation movement will destroy life and end the world as they know it. And uh, so they publish the edict throughout the uh, empire that every man should be ruler over his own household. And so after the king's anger subsides, we saw in chapter 2, his seven stooges propose... uh, Uh, 5th century B.C. version of the Bachelorette. And one of the contestants is this beautiful Jewish orphan named Esther. And uh, she has been raised by her cousin, uh, instructed by him to keep her Jewishness a secret. She's quite popular. She becomes a favorite. The king is pleased. He loves her more than all the other women. And so he throws another party, which seems to be the conclusion of every major event. In case you were taught on the flannel graph in Sunday school when you were young that Esther and Mordecai are faithful heroes of the story, let me say otherwise. They didn't return with the other Israelites to assist in the rebuilding of Jerusalem uh, that we see in the book of Ezra. In fact, one of the key themes in understanding the book of Esther is that the main characters of our story are Jewish exiles descendants of the captives that Nebuchadnezzar seized when he destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah over a hundred years before. And although when Cyrus became emperor, he permitted the Jews to return to their homeland, most of them chose not to go home. They've become comfortable in the empire. So the first thing when we get to these characters, you have to understand they are in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Jews should have gone home. And they decided to stay because it was more comfortable to stay. So the real, the, the heroic Jews of the story have already left. These are the ones that stayed. In fact, we know from chapter 2 that Esther hides her faith. 
She doesn't live by the Mosaic law. She doesn't follow the dietary rules, nor does she observe the Sabbath. In fact, Esther and Mordecai are not characters of great character. On the contrary, they're sinful people who've made sinful choices and are living in the wrong place at the wrong time. Last week, we were introduced to Esther. This week, it's Mordecai's turn. And we pick up the story of Mordecai at the end of chapter 2. The story starts with Mordecai's intervention. Yes, the blanks in your bulletins are back. So we're at the end of chapter 2, verse 19, and Mordecai's intervention. It says, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So here at the end of chapter 2, very quickly, Mordecai discovers a plot to kill uh, the king, to kill Xerxes. He reports it to Esther. She tells the king after the investigation, these allegations are proved true, and the would-be assassins are quickly executed. And Mordecai's efforts are recorded in the royal record. And so what should we expect now? Who would we anticipate is going to get the grand and well-deserved promotion? Well, let's look at the text starting in chapter 3. And here we see Mordecai's defiance. Mordecai's defiance. It begins and says, after these things, after they found the uh, would-be assassins and uncovered the plot and wrote down in the record that this came from Mordecai, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. When the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So instead of Mordecai, some guy named Haman receives the promotion. So what do you think of that? So not only did Mordecai not receive the proper promotion, but what's worse Haman gets it, and he becomes what's known as the vizier. And those of you that have watched Aladdin know what that is. He becomes the vizier in Persia, second in command to the king. And perhaps we can find some comfort in the fact that Mordecai won't bow to Haman. Why wouldn't he give Haman honor? Perhaps you're thinking, well, strong biblical characters don't uh, bow down to people. They bow down and pay honor only to God. And that's a fine thought, but that's not really accurate. We have plenty of evidence that demonstrates that other faithful followers of God bow to humans. In fact, in chapter 8, we'll read that Esther bows at the king's feet. 
And there's a distinct difference between bowing in honor and bowing in worship. It's important to understand what the original audience may have thought when they read this. I think the original Jewish audience would have hated Haman even before receiving that he received a promotion, before reading that, that the promotion that was due to Mordecai. And the clue is in Haman's ethnicity. Haman, we're told, is an Agagite. It's not so easy to say as it looks. Agagite. Well, that clears it up, surely, you know. (laughs) You need to know the Jewish history here. About a thousand years before Esther, God redeemed his people from Egypt. And guess who's awarded the distinction of being the first nation to battle God's chosen people as they journey to Sinai? And the answer was the Amalekites. You may remember the battle where the Israelites were winning when Moses' arms were held high and his arms grew weary and they started to lose. So Aaron and Hur gave him a seat and they held his arms up and the Israelites defeated the Amalekites. And here's what God said to Moses after that victory. It's in Exodus chapter 17. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. Recite it in the years of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar altar, and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So that's when they were coming in uh, on their journey through Sinai, heading towards the promised land. Fast forward 500 years to 1 Samuel. We read that the Israelites now are led by King Saul, and they are sent to utterly destroy the Amalekites. King Saul obeys most of the command, but leaves some sheep and cattle alive as well as King Agag. And Samuel confronts Saul. He arrives in the camp and says, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? One of the great lines of the Bible And Saul defends his disobedience on the grounds that the sheep and the goats, well, they're they're meant for sacrifice. We saved them to sacrifice to God. And it picks up 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. So it's this incident where he keeps King Agag alive that Saul, even though it actually doesn't happen for many years, he's told he's losing the throne. He is not going to be the king of Israel anymore because of his disobedience. And then we go on one of my favorite passages, 1 Samuel 15. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Obviously, he doesn't think they're going to kill him at this point. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces 
before the Lord in Gilgal, one of the favorite stories of every man and boy. Because we really like the hacking Agag to pieces part. Usually we skip over the Agag representing sin in the camp on disobedience to the word of God part. Anyway, it's this ethnicity that our author in Esther is calling our attention to. The cursed Amalekites who God is at war with, led by King Agag in 1 Samuel. And so we have this reference, Haman is an Agagite. And reading that would have stirred the emotions of any Israelite reader. So back to Esther 3. Not only does Mordecai, the Jew, not receive the proper promotion, but what's worse, Haman, the Agagite, receives the promotion and becomes second in command in Persia. And for Mordecai, whose genealogy in chapter 2 linked him to King Saul and to King Saul's family, to bow to Haman, a descendant of King Agag's family, was just too much for him to swallow. And the reason for Mordecai's refusal is more likely because of the animosity between the Jews and the Amalekites. This explains when they finally report uh, Mordecai to Haman for his insubordination, his Jewishness is a key element of the report. Now you have to wonder, is this all really worth it? Mordecai is not standing up to Haman as a matter of moral principle out of obedience to God. No, it's simply the descendants of Saul hated the descendants of Agag, as they have for centuries. It goes back 500 years from this time. It's just an ancient Near Eastern version of the Hatfields and McCoys. I mean, if you think about it, Mordecai's been compromising his faith all along. He had worked hard to fit in as a good citizen of the empire. He showed little concern over the ethical issues involved when Esther was taken into the harem of the Gentile king with her one-night audition in his bed. In fact, he's the one that insisted that Esther conceal her Jewish identity. Mordecai doesn't bow to Haman just because he's mad he didn't get the promotion, but because it went to one of his family's enemies. And I had to wonder if Mordecai ever regretted his decision to remain standing. Because as we'll soon find out, his determination not to bow will have drastic consequences. Look at verse 5, Haman's response. You know, I'm reminded, as, as you know, I'm teaching a class on preaching, and one of the things I told them is, always direct people back to the text. One of the most common things out of your mouth should be, look at verse 5, and have people go back there. And uh, I just did that and came to mind. They uh, always go back to the text. So we go back here to verse 5. We see Haman's response. It says, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, 
In the twelfth year of King Ahas Urus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Haman's arrogance and wickedness take him to this incredible depth of evil. Haman decides to not only have vengeance on Mordecai, but on the entire Jewish race. Racial hatred is certainly not invented by Haman, but it may find its epitome in him, at least up to this point in history. He's going to kill an entire race because he's getting snubbed by one guy. And yet before he proposes his plan to the king, he has to decide um, when to enact the plan. And so we read that he casts the pure, it casts lots, it's it's something the equivalent of rolling dice. So that fate would determine the best time for the destruction of the Jews. But tell me, who do we believe controls the dice? You probably know a biblical worldview completely contradicts the idea that chance and fate rule our world. And we got to pause for a moment and consider, do you really believe that God is in control of all that goes on? Do you believe that God purposes promotions and medical miracles? Or what about flat tires and stubbed toes? Is God controlling both the cosmic and the minutiae? Because it's obvious that Haman doesn't believe any of that. He's planning his massive genocide by casting lots. And he selects his day, or rather when God purposes the day that Haman will propose for the annihilation of the Jews, then Haman goes to the king. And we pick up the story in verse 8, Look at verse 8, uh, the king's decree. We have there the king's decree. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Notice he doesn't say exactly who. Just there's people. They're out there. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws, so it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes are summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the capital, and the king and Haman sat down to drink but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And what we see is Haman can't bring about the destruction of the Jews by himself. 
He needs the authority of the king, and we see Haman as a skilled political operative. We find Haman leading the king on by spinning the facts. Look again at verse 8. There is a certain people. Their laws are different. They don't keep the king's laws. And it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. He begins with the truth. There really were certain people scattered and dispersed among the Persians. And then he goes to a half-truth. Their laws are different. Well, that could be true depending on which laws you're talking about. Many of the Jewish civil laws were very much the same or similar to the Persian laws. The real difference came with the ceremonial laws, which are religious in nature. Then his third point is an exaggeration. They do not obey the king's laws. Well, even though Mordecai didn't bow to Haman, most likely, as, best as what we know about him, he followed most of the king's laws, as did most of the Jews who stayed behind. And then he finishes with a completely faulty conclusion. It is not in the king's best interest. He says it's not to the king's profit to tolerate the Jews. Was it not in the king's best interest for Mordecai to save his life? Why is it now suddenly not in the king's interest? This is the point of the story that really bugged me. Because you've got to wonder, how could Xerxes agree to this? How could he not just see right through this? Why wouldn't he at least investigate this certain people that Haman references? And why does he return the money to Haman? And that gives us a puzzle in the next chapter when Mordecai references the amount of money used to bribe him. So why does the king allow Haman to pass this decree? Apparently the king didn't care enough to find out what's really going on. Haman's description of the problem is pretty vague. There's a certain people who keep to themselves, they have their own laws, they don't obey yours. It seems that what the, the crime the Israelites have committed is really the ultimate sin against the empire. They have failed to assimilate. They have failed to become Persian. Second, the king is motivated by greed, simple greed. He's being bribed with a vast sum of money. It says 10,000 talents of silver. That's about half of the revenue from taxes for the entire empire. It would be the equivalent of trying to bribe the president of the United States with a trillion dollars. Remember the king, he has just lost a very costly war with the Greeks because we had a four-year gap between uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. He was off losing. And uh, so he's got away the potential financial benefit against the cost of signing off on the destruction of this obscure, unidentified people. And the decision's no contest. He goes for the money. The king takes the bribe. He allows Haman to have his way and because he's being so handsomely rewarded. And he sends a message in verse uh, 13 to destroy, to kill, and annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. At this point, you've got to be wondering what God's up to. God's not mentioned in this book, but if you're an Israelite, isn't this exactly the time you'd be begging God to show up? And to do something, anything. Imagine the panic. This news goes out. It's, it's still 10 months away. 
But the news goes out now. Imagine there's mourning and fasting and weeping and wailing and sackcloth and ashes. In 10 months, they're all going to be killed. Now, Haman has made a major miscalculation. He cast lots to choose the day because he thought his future lay in the stars. We know Proverbs 16 says the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so it was the date selected by the lot casting of lots is far enough away that God's rescue plan has plenty of time to go into effect. So the king is wrong when he tells Haman in verse 11, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them uh, as it seems good to you. These are God's people, and despite their constant sin and unfaithfulness, God remains faithful, and God's not going to allow his people to be destroyed at the whim of some empire. So that sort of brings us up to the end of the story here, and what we're left to consider is, I think, mainly the complications of sin. All this happened because Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. And Mordecai doesn't bow to Haman because he's mad he didn't get the promotion, but primarily because it went to one of his family's enemies. And yet bowing to Haman is really a secondary issue. It's an issue only because of the past failures and sins of God's people. If King Saul had carried out his commission properly in the first place, there wouldn't be any Agagites left to threaten his people. And this is a perennial problem. Past sins have a way of coming back to haunt us, and sometimes our children after us, and this goes on for 500 years. How many difficult ethical decisions over which we've agonized would never even confront us if it wasn't for our past sins? People's lives can become horribly complicated because of past sins. And when the complications begin, they tend to proliferate. And that's the way it was for Mordecai. His behavior is brought to Haman. They tell us they tried to talk to him day after day. Look back at verse 4, but he won't budge. He's not bowing to Haman. And Haman decides simple revenge isn't enough. Killing Mordecai, a single person, just isn't enough payback for his wounded pride. So he plans the destruction of all of Mordecai's people throughout the entire empire. All the people of God would have to pay for the actions of a single individual. And Mordecai stands as repercussions for everyone. It affects all of his friends and family. It affects all the Jews in the whole empire. It affects all the communities which have to carry out this grisly order. Orders were given that Gentile rulers in all the lands would have to kill all the Jews, even though they may have gotten along with them just fine. Sorry, Abraham, I know you've been my neighbor for 30 years now, but I have to kill you. Orders are orders. It's nothing personal, strictly business. That's what's going on. You know, to be honest with you, that's the reality in many parts of the world today. There are enemies and empires who wish to hurt and harm Christians. And as Christians, this conflict is part and parcel of life on this earth. If we learn anything from our year-long sojourn through Revelation, it's that there's a hidden spiritual conflict going on since the beginning of the world. And Satan's warfare against the people of God is ongoing, and he will use any Haman anywhere he can find him. Back to where we started. 
Near the end of the the movie, X-Men, The Last Stand, we find Wolverine, a noble character, nearly coaxes Jean Grey back to sanity. But just as he's about to win her over, the army shows up and basically tries to shoot everybody. She gets angry, the phoenix resurfaces, and she begins to destroy everything around her. And while everybody flees from her fury, Wolverine decides he's the one who can stop her, and and so he goes to do that. He fights his way to her, relying on his self-healing powers, don't you wish you had those, to protect himself from her. And he reaches her, she shows contempt for his willingness to die for the others, to which he responds, I would only die for you. Stunned at that reply, Jean Grey regains control, begs him to save her, and he does by killing her. The death of the one to save the many. It's a redemption story. We have a redemption story. We have the best redemption story on the market. And if you think about it, God has far more reason to act against us and against our families than Ahas Urias did to act against the Jews. We haven't kept God's law. We've refused to bow down before him. We've refused to submit to him as we should. We've refused to give him the honor that is his right as our creator. And it's actually true in our case that it's not to God's profit to tolerate us since we're born cosmic rebels against his goodness and grace. Once more, we have a cosmic enemy, Satan, who would be more than happy to present true and valid reasons why we shouldn't be allowed to live. The decree for our destruction could legitimately be signed against us by the great king. But that's not how the great king, the sovereign God, has chosen to deal with us. Instead, he's taken his own dear son, handed him over to his enemies. Instead of all God's people being killed for the actions of one man, as we see threatened in Esther, now one man, the man Jesus, is killed for the actions of all God's people. Do you see the difference? All God's people were threatened for the actions of one man in Esther. And our great king steps in. And the one man is killed for the actions of all God's people. And this action, the death of Christ on the cross, has redemptive consequences for all of his people as they place their faith in him. And instead of letters of death winging their way to all the corners of the empire, we now have the gospel of life going to every corner of the world, to every nation, people, tribe, each in their own language. Because ultimately there's only two classes of people in this world, those who bow to Christ and those who don't. And one will have joy and thankfulness that comes with the forgiveness of sins, and the other will pay the price that comes from their stubborn attachment to their sins. This decree has been signed and sealed by the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, and it cannot be changed. Your sins must be paid for either by you or by Jesus. The wages of sin is death, and every one of us has earned it. But the free gift of God is eternal life in his son. And therein is a grace that extends as wide and as far as our sins and promises us mercy and acceptance in Christ. Your choices have consequences. Mordecai's choices had consequences. But thankfully, God's choices have consequences.
His choices are life and death. Remember that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, we confess that as we move through the book of Esther, we do so with this increasing sense of sorrow and sinfulness. We know there's hidden things here. We know there's things that are hard to understand. We know there's hope that's also hidden in this story. Help us to see this as a story, not just about Esther, but about us. Help us to understand we're just as sinful as Ahas Yorias. We're just as sinful as Haman. We're just as sinful as Mordecai. And yet we have a Savior who loves sinners. And for that, we're truly grateful. We pray all this in his name, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.